Today, uh, we come to the conclusion of the book of Ruth. And it's a beautiful love story, yet there's more than that that is going on in the story. Uh, as a book of scripture, it has as much to say about our relationship with God as it does um, about our, the relationship between two lovers or the relationship and the healing of a woman whose heart has been broken. Two weeks ago, Tim Bryady helpfully explained us the role of the kinsman redeemer in the world of ancient Israel. And this morning, we're going to read about a curious practice that's described in the scriptures and commanded by God, but um, is probably lost on most of us. It's like a word that has become detached from its original meaning. The, the practice seems to be a metaphor that has lost its connection with what is being visibly demonstrated. An example of this might be, say, how we use the word succinct or succinct. If you were to use that word, you would think that I was, if I were to use that word, if I were to speak that way, you would think that I would be speaking clearly and directly to the point. And that's a quality of speech with which I have not often been accused. <laughs> but succinct in the 1500s meant to be wearing a belt. If you had a belt over your tunic, you were said to be succinct. You can see how that having something snugly and tightly wrapped around you could come to describe a way of speaking that was tight and to the point. But we've lost the origin, the, you know, the origin of the figure of speech, and we only know the word and what it is that it means today, um, it detached from you know, what it originally described. Um, let me... With that, let me just get to the point. <laughs> uh, as we look at Ruth chapter 4, we're going to be looking at settling the matter. That's one. Two, I'm very proud of. Chacos, Crocs, and Birkenstocks. Gonna, I hope that'll stick with you. Um, and then the blessing. And Duncan Vincent is going to come forward and read the passage. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
Take my rights of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people. Place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gates and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Very well. All right. So, firstly... The first thing that we see in this passage is that Boaz is settling the matter. Um, that's how chapter 3 ends, uh, with Ruth or Naomi saying to Ruth that um, he will see the matter settled today. Now, we already know, um, as we begin chapter 4, that there's a nearer kinsman uh, in line to serve as a Limelech's kinsman redeemer. Boaz blesses Ruth because she could have gone after one of the younger men. And though there are men who were younger and possibly more handsome than Boaz, um, it's hard to believe that there are any who could have been more forthright and wise, maybe we could say succinct, as Boaz. Boaz takes up his position at the city gate. Now, any walled city, um, it, the natural large gathering place, a place where deals would be negotiated, transactions are made, and judgments rendered, that, would have, that, that large gathering place would have naturally been the city gate. 
Gathering places at the city gate were the courthouse, the town hall, and the public square all rolled into one. And seeing this nearer kinsman, Boaz engages him immediately. You'll remember that Naomi and Ruth have been in town for a while. Naomi and Ruth's presence were not unknown to the people. Elimelech may have sold his land before he went to Moab, or it, maybe it laid unattached for over 10 years. But Naomi's plan with redeeming the land is to provide rest for Ruth. Boaz says to this kinsman, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. All right Now, the, the sitting down, the stakes are up. Uh, taking 10 elders and sitting down has opened an official gathering. This is like the court has been seated. All know that they're not just sitting around chatting about things. Things are going to be heard and decided upon. And Boaz lets everyone know that they're talking about the redemption of the land of Elimelech and his sons. The question is, will the nearest redeemer, maybe this is Elimelech's brother, maybe it's his nephew, um, will he redeem the land? Boaz says he is willing, but that it is not his right to do so yet. Now, redeeming Elimelech's land has the potential of being a lucrative business opportunity. The land would yield profits for you if you possessed it, more than you had, right? Um, that land would be yours at least until the Jubilee year. And we don't know how many years that is before that comes. More land means more crops, more income, more influence. You're consolidating wealth. It, it's a no-brainer. Elimelech's nearest kin says, I will redeem it. Now, knowing that Naomi's intent for the redemption of the land means a wedding for Ruth, Boaz says... The day that you buy the field from Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This changes things. Now the transaction isn't merely a business deal. The right of possession um, entails a communal obligation. Right? You're not just now making money you're um, participating in the social welfare of the community. If the man takes the land of Ruth, rather than consolidating his land and his wealth, he actually is diluting his assets, right? Because the land will eventually revert back to Ruth's children and Elimelech's heirs, right? The near kinsman, on the other hand, will be working to maintain his own land and the land of Ruth's descendants, Elimelech's descendants. Now, here's, here's where it gets complicated. What if this man has only one son? And what if that one son is by Ruth? If a potential son of Ruth becomes the firstborn heir, the Redeemer's own family may find themselves absorbed into Elimelech's clan. Right? Taking into account his personal circumstances... The near kinsman says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, Boaz, he shows himself the kind of man that he is. He is just in the giving the first man the right of refusal, the first right of refusal, but he has also stated his own intent to redeem the land for himself as the near, if the nearest kinsman cannot. And this sets the stage for probably, you know, what I'm talking about uh, as the Chacos, Crocs, and Birkenstocks, okay? You notice that in the negotiating between the closest redeemer, do you notice how it is that it concludes? It concludes with the nearest of kin taking off a sandal and handing it over. You say, oh, he took off his sandal. Now I get it. (laughs) That makes sense. Right? The author of Ruth explains what's going on. He says that this was a way in which you attested to transfer rights. Like a signature today on a contract. We read about the custom um, of this practice and where it originates in scriptures in Deuteronomy 25, though it probably existed throughout the Near East at that time in other cultures. And in reading Deuteronomy 25, I've got the slide for you here. If you, um, I think if you can put that up. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 reads this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, this is the practice of what's called leveret marriage, which doesn't have anything to do with Levi, um, um, but leveret marriage. If he has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties The duty of a husband's brother to her, the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of this city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Well, that's an insult, isn't it? (laughs) Now, what transpires, sorry, what transpires in Ruth 4 is not exactly what's described in Deuteronomy 25. Ruth 4 describes a circumstance that reflects the practice without so much of the offense and the outrage and the unfaithfulness. Ruth doesn't seem to be present, right, in that interaction. All who are there recognize that Deuteronomy 25 applies. Um, but, and, and for that matter, all that we know of this nearest kinman, kinsman is that he is the one who took his sandal off. Right? That's, that's how we know who he is. But rather than Ruth having to take off the man's sandal and spitting on him, the man acknowledges that he won't or can't redeem the land. And he takes off his own sandal and he hands it over. Okay, so you're like, okay, that makes sense. I get how that happens. But what is going on? What does that mean? What is, what is the significance? You don't have an ex- explanation of the custom. I think there's enough information 
for us to deduce what it means and to deduce its significance um, without having um, to have it, say, prove to us. Um, Michael um, King gets kind of credit for the thoughts here, um, though he doesn't get the blame. Okay, so if we can have, if I can say that. I believe that the metaphor that's pictured here through the sandal custom reflects a truth that you and I know in our bones, right? It's a truth that we know without it having to be proved to us. It's a truth that, of course, it makes sense. Um, It feels right. Um, We don't have to be told that it's true and then convinced that it's true. It's truth that you know in your body is truth like we know that there are seven distinct musical tones. We've done this before, and I love it every time we do it. But you can sing the seven musical tones. You go, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, ti. Nobody stops at T, right? Everybody goes, do, right? They go up, and they complete the octave, right? Which is the same first note, but different, right? That's a true thing. We, we know that things resolve, not just by having it all, but by having it all and then renewed. No one taught you that. No one taught you how to do that. That's just something that you sense. And what's taking place, I think, here is something that's very similar. Right? With the sandal, last week I talked about pairs and that there are pairs in the Bible. Some things um, are not complete unless there are two. Okay? You have a pair of eyes, a pair of ears, a pair of hands, a pair of feet. Okay? Those are things that um, to have just one, like just one sandal, is something that's useless to you. When Ruth comes softly to Boaz on the threshing floor in chapter 3, she uncovers his two feet and she tells Boaz this, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What she's saying to Boaz is, is that you have the right of redemption, right, but take upon yourself the obligation of being a husband. Cover me, right? Right? This pair, the pair of naked feet, speak to the two-ness of an intimate relationship, the pair of relational privilege and covenant obligation. The rights to possessing of the land, right, it comes together with covenant obligation, the covenant obligation of being faithful to God's covenant. Possession, the rights of possession, right, and continuing obligation. Those two things um, are things that I believe are a self-evident reality. When I, in in 1986, I can remember being at a dance. I can't believe this was that long ago, but we were at a dance. Um, It was a, it was an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship dance. They were playing lots of different kinds of music. And the song by the Georgia Satellites came on. Do you know that one, their one hit wonder? No Huggy, right? Keep your hands to yourself. Now, no one is sad when they sing that song. Nobody's sad when they sing it. And actually what happens, and what happened then, is that every person who sang along with that song 
was sympathetic to the singer's ardor, right? He was caught up in the throes of um, a romantic passion. But everyone sided with the girlfriend's response. Don't give me no lines. And keep your hands to yourself. Right? That's a two. You can't just have one without the other. Right? You know, if a bunch of people gathered, say, um, at a wedding reception or whatever, um, there is a righteous enjoyment of the reality of both of those things. But the enjoyment is, is that they both are together. Right? To put it another way as it relates here, you cannot enjoy the fruit of the land unless you obligate yourself to covenant fidelity to the land's owner. Those two go together. For Israel, the right to possess the land came hand in hand with covenant obligation. It wasn't Israel's land in, perpetu in, in perpetuity regardless of how it was that they behaved. It was their land on condition of maintaining the obligation of the covenant. Right? The judgment for covenant unfaithfulness was actually why Ruth or why Naomi and Elimelech went to Moab to begin with because there was a famine in the land and famine was a sign, right? It was a way in which God was calling, judging and calling his people to repentance. The nearer kinsmen here in Ruth chapter 4 can't have the land enjoy its profitability, its fruitfulness, unless he takes on the obligation to perpetuate Elimelech's line and Elimelech's family. To take the, the right, to take the land without the obligation is like walking around with one sandal. And a one sandal is no good to you. It's only good if there's a pair. And Boaz is willing to take the pair, not just make use of the one. And Incidentally, if it needs to be said, right, this is why sexual intimacy outside of marriage is self-evidently wrong. It's not merely arbitrarily a forbidden commandment. Those covenant obligation, covenant faithfulness, and intimacy go together. It's a two. It's a pair. Right? In the end, Boaz redeems the land and marries Ruth. You are witnesses this day that I have brought the, from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. And also, Ruth the, the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Right? This is the language of covenant. This is how it is that we live together in community. We're not a bunch of individuals who are walking around in one sandal, wearing one Chaco, one Croc, or one Birkenstock. If somebody asks you, why is it sinful to be sexually active outside of the covenant of marriage? All you have to do is this. You want that? Nobody wants that. I thought about buying everybody a flip-flop, just kind of handing you a flip-flop, saying, Merry Christmas. 
right? We are a two-sandaled people and only and are only unsandaled with those with whom we enjoy covenant promises. And this leads to the blessing in, in Ruth 4. Um, it's not without, this is not succinct, it's not without coincidence that Ruth's, um, the blessing of the women of Ruth, that in their blessing they mention Rachel and Leah. You remember Jacob wanted the younger, but the obligation fell to the older. And Leah herself was the mother of Judah. And it's not without coincidence that Perez is mentioned because he was a child. He was the child of Judah's leveret marriage with Tamar. Privilege and obligation work through these stories. We read that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Obligation and privilege work together and bear fruitful blessing. Right? No, no longer wondering what has happened to Naomi. Like they asked, they said of her when she came back. The women of the town now bless her and they say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. This is striking. Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Right? Boaz has become the seventh portion he promised to Naomi and to Ruth at the end of chapter 3. He has become the seventh portion of grain. And Ruth, who is better than seven sons, translates Naomi's world. She has now returned and come to an, a full, she returned empty, but now she has a full lap. And the women add, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, servant. What brings together privileged right and obligation is the Redeemer. The beauty of Ruth's story is the beauty of our story. We do not live merely in a world of getting even, of giving tit for tat, of merely getting what we deserve. We, we have a kinsman Redeemer who loves us and mediates a way for our blessing by taking upon himself the price of securing that blessing, paying for our sin, securing for us the rights of the children of God. Jesus Christ did not rest until he saw the matter settled. Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9, it was a call to worship a couple of weeks ago, has been a helpful way for me as I've been working through Ruth to vocalize what the love of the Redeemer works in the, in the heart of those who are redeemed. It, it reads this way. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We enter into 
2024, let these words be on our lips and let us rest in our Redeemer, Jesus.